when uh, when we speak about the practice and about living, we talk a lot about the present moment. What is really the present moment? What is the present? Is there really any such thing? What is a moment? Is there such a thing as a moment? What happens when you really look into this question, when you really look into it, right now? Is there anything that you can point to that you call moment? What happens? But I bet if you even looked at an electron, <laughs> what remains when you really look is nothing, is silence, is peace. Behind this concept of moment that we so so cherish, and so believe in, and so take for granted. And we create worlds of concepts like these, and our minds become very restless, as Carol was quoting from Nizagadatta, and it clouds, somehow clouds the silent, true nature of our minds. Peace. You can feel it right now. Prior to any thought or commentary about this experience. So all of our self-images, our concepts, ideas, likes and dislikes, our conclusions, seem to cloud clear light of our own mind, the silence. It would be nice if we could just hang out in this silence, in this clear light of our own mind. I guess what the Buddha noticed was that people aren't able to, they're so caught up. So his first noble truth what he asked us to look at was the fact of our condition, was the fact of our suffering, our unsatisfactoriness. To look directly at our condition. I guess the assumption was that if we really looked at our condition, that we'd no longer be victims of it. And at this point, at least I've seen in my own mind, I can be bounced around by the waves of my own mind, just thrown from side to side, from desire to aversion, to restlessness, to laziness, doubt. Buddha talked about the different kinds of disturbances to our minds, the different tendencies that generally have the effect of 
tormenting us. Use the word kilesa, which often is translated as defilement, defilements of the mind, but more accurately maybe is torments of the mind. Because when we don't see them for what they are, they tend to take us, they tend to cloud our true nature. They tend to block, dam up the river, you might say. There's a traditional list, which many of you have probably heard of, of these kilesas. And the Buddhism is, or the Buddhist teachings are full, are full of lists. And this one is the five hindrances to go along with the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Seven Factors of Enlightenment and this and that. But this is the five hindrances. And in some ways, addressing the issue of the five hindrances is the practice of meditation. It really is the, the whole practice. Some people have said the practice is very easy, it's just the hindrances that are difficult. Because in a sense, working with the torments in our own mind is like swimming upstream. There's a strong force of conditioning. So no matter how long you practice, no matter what tradition you've practiced in, what method, in, in everyone's practice, the hindrances are really at the heart of it, dealing with difficulties, dealing with the torments that arise. And it's easy when you think of hindrances to think of them as bad because they arise. So you get into this kind of bad or good thinking. It's not so much that they're bad or good, but that they cause suffering in our minds. And when we don't look at them, we don't see them, we're carried along creating more and more suffering, more and more pain. So the first thing we need to do is be able to identify them. And the first one Carol spoke about last night fairly elaborately, and that's the hindrance or the kilesa of sense desire or craving. And this is the mind that is seeking outward, continually reaching out for satisfaction, thinking that the next experience, the next pleasure, will somehow bring me a sense of peace. And this is wanting everything. This is the wanting mind, wanting pleasant sights and sounds and tastes, relationships, things. What happens when we continually act on this and don't really see what's occurring is we strengthen this factor of wanting in our minds. And if you really look at this quality of wanting that ordinarily is associated so much with pleasant fantasy, when you really look at the state of wanting, it's actually, if you feel it in your body, you can look for yourself, it's actually a kind of state of impoverishment. It says, I'm not happy as things are. I need this to be happy. There's this kind of pulling back in the belly, kind of reaching forward with the neck, So inherent in this is this sense of things are not okay as they are. Yet all day long we go from desire to desire. It's just what we're conditioned to do. Wanting, wanting. On retreats it shows up in very, very funny ways, as you probably noticed 
either at this retreat or at other retreats. In my own case, when things get difficult in my practice, my predominant tendency is to start wanting things. And it can be anything. I often cite this example when I was sitting a a long retreat and I was sitting in a room that didn't have any closet in it. And I was spending the whole time in my room and my clothes were hanging on the, on the rack on the side of the room. And I was sitting and things started to get very difficult and I started to experience a lot of pain in the body, pain in the mind. And out of the corner of my eye, I caught a piece of clothing that I really liked a lot. And I started fantasizing, having it in different colors and wearing it and this and that. And that's, that's what our minds do. At least that's what mine does. And clearly, it's just the activity of the wanting mind. And I would get a momentary sense of, of pleasure from it, but inherent in it was the sense of, I can't accept what's going on right now. The if-only mind that Carol was speaking about, if only I had this, then I could rest, then I could be at peace. If only they had different food. If only I could have ice cream. Another common theme on retreats is what most of you may have heard of. Is it called the Vipassana Romance? Have, I'm curious, have people heard about this? Well, let's see, it's this wanting mind again. Usually there's, or sometimes there's someone in the, in the group who catches your attention. They either like the way they walk or the way they look or the way they, whatever. There's some, something about that person. And before you know it, you have overlaid or projected your most extreme romantic fantasies onto that person. Within two minutes, you're already strolling down the street with the kids and the, and the whole thing. And this is, this is a pervasive uh, tendency of people on retreats. It's unbelievable. At times, it's been so strong in my own practice that I, was, I went to the teacher certain that I was really interrupting the, the, the object of my, of my wantings. Uh, I was disturbing her practice. It turns out when I approached the person at the end of the retreat, she was completely oblivious to me. And Meanwhile, I had gone through all this torment about, about uh, wanting so much. The Vipassana romance. You might notice on retreat the wanting for attention when we feel lonely sometimes or somehow not in our ordinary element, social element. There's this kind of wanting attention. You might find yourself posturing in a certain way when you walk around other people or wanting people to notice how slow you walk or how, how you happen to move. Sure. I think I'm an advantage of. I mean, I didn't realize there wasn't any talking before I came here. I think it's an advantage in a sense. Uh huh. To. Not talk. <laughs> it's an advantage not to talk? Mm. Oh, yes. You see, you're, you're able to see so much of your, no, of your mind's not, not much, but I think people mm. go off in groups whilst they stop talking. Uh huh. You mean they, they go, they separate into groups? Mm. Uh-huh. Perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. 
important to not to see desire as bad, but to really investigate it. Really investigate this, this sense of desire that we ordinarily so much just act out. For example, you notice at the about 15 or 20 minutes before the end of a sitting, the desire arises for the sitting to end. Have you noticed that, anyone? And we really, there's some assumption that if the bell rings, that when the bell rings, then I'll be happy. I'll get this sense of relief. And so we hear the bell and, oh, we feel great. After we've been waiting, waiting for the bell to ring. And we assume it's the, the ringing of the bell that actually alleviates our suffering. But actually, if you really look closely, and don't necessarily take my word for it, if you look closely, you'll see that it's not the bell that takes away your suffering. It's the cessation or the passing of the desire for the sitting to end. And it's the desire for the sitting to end which keeps us in that state of agitation, that state of wanting. You might look at this in regard to anything, even a, an ice cream cone. I notice there is some pleasure when, when I have the thought to have an ice cream cone. And before I know it, after, once I have this little thought, before I know it, I'm being dragged to the ice cream parlor. Just based on this one thought, I get there and I'm all excited and I want the ice cream. I order it and I taste it and there is some kind of momentary pleasure from eating it. But a lot of my peace comes from the cessation of the desire. If I didn't satisfy that desire, I couldn't be happy. And it's the ending of the desire that actually gives me the sense of peace, not so much the ice cream cone. So the sense desire, to really notice how it operates on the retreat or in your life. The second of the clouds or hindrances that are common in all of our minds is really the flip side of desire, and that's aversion in its many forms, or anger. This is general ill will, or the condemning mind, the mind that judges, that strikes out at things. mind that pulls away from things in fear. It's another kind of aversion. Really the flip side of the wanting mind. Impatience. Irritation. Generally, anger or aversion comes with a kind of burning quality. Generally unpleasant. And when it gets extreme, it becomes quite violent and agitated, very loud. Often our hearts get kind of tight. Solar plexus get tight. And it comes in very subtle ways, just such as a pain in the knee, just a slight movement away from it. it makes it actually appear solid. I mentioned this morning, but when you look at it, it actually is changing. It's often associated with memories in our mind of some situation where we felt harmed by someone. And we keep replaying it and then feeling the feelings could be about something that happened 20 years ago. It's amazing how we can carry this around right into this present moment, into the simplicity of just sitting here or walking. 
comes in the form of resistance. Resistance to the walking or to walking and then sitting as a schedule or whatever it happens to be. I was telling the, the uh, interview group today that when I first started to do this practice and I felt such resistance to the walking that I would... The, the retreat was at this Girl Scout camp in, on an island in, in Hawaii. This beautiful setting and here I am supposed to be doing walking meditation. I was so averse to it that I started storming around the, the retreat center at, at uh, full speed until it finally died down, until I actually recognized that this was just aversion, this was just resistance. The thing about aversion and, or anger and its more full flowering is it, it's seductive because it gives us that sense of some kind of power, kind of strength. And it's so easy to attribute what we're feeling to what's happening externally. This happens a lot on retreats, such as the sounds in the room. We get irritated because someone moves in a noisy way, or someone near us walks too fast, or walks too slow, or we don't like the color of their socks. So the flip side of this Vipassana romance is another phenomenon that's common called the Vipassana vendetta. Someone who, for one reason or another, you don't like them, and before, and you don't even know them either. And before you know it, you've projected all your worst, hideous thoughts onto this person, and it's very common and very painful as well. The times that I've felt vendettas, I've approached the person at the end of the retreat to let them know that they were the object of my vendetta, and I've ended up really liking the person more often than not. Also, it's a, a good reflection when we, when we look at this aversion to conditions as they are. We start to see the extent to which we attribute our happiness to conditions being a certain way. And one of the things that cured me of that to a certain degree as far as meditation went, was practicing meditation in Burma, where from the time I woke up in the morning, which was about two or three in the morning, until the time I went to bed at night, there was constant clanging of either pots and pans, or gongs, or loudspeakers, or metal-on-metal construction. And you might have a romantic view of what it's like to practice meditation in an Asian country, but it's not like that at all. It's complete noise. In fact, I would go to bed with earplugs, and I practice with earplugs as well, but I would awaken as though the, to the sound being inside my head. It was very difficult. But I found, as I learned to deal with the conditions as they were, that my mind quieted, and after some time they really weren't a problem. But at first I was sure that these conditions were going to make it impossible for me to have any kind of depth of practice or any good practice experience. It really has nothing to do with the conditions. It's really the state of our own mind. To recognize that aversion and anger arise in our own mind. can't attribute it to the outside. So we've got desire, aversion. The third one is sloth and torpor. Okay. Sorry, can I talk to I did at different times without the earplugs, but sometimes it was so noisy that, that I, I had to have these plugs. 
when they were pounding metal on, on metal. A bit difficult. <laughs> I have some. We'll talk about it <laughs> No. No. <laughs> I bought them at a rifle shop. Anyway, back to the Dharma here. <laughs> so the the third hindrance or difficulty, sloth and torpor. This is laziness, sleepiness, dullness, thinking mind, spaced out, nodding. The mind is weak, it's not able to sit with things. This happens in practice. This is, this is not something that's wrong, but these times are difficult. They can be difficult. The example often used is, is that of a, a slug. You know those little things that little slimy things that crawl very slowly around. Usually sloth and torpor arises for three reasons. Sometimes it's because we need sleep. And in fact, in the early parts of retreats, as I was saying earlier today to someone, often what gets revealed is the level of fatigue that lies underneath our ordinary awareness that we because our tendency to override our natural bodily needs, our mental needs, we move at such a fast pace. When we slow down, we discover that we're deeply fatigued. And that happens often at the beginning of a retreat. So if you find yourself really sleeping a lot, it might be because you're tired. Another reason sloth and torpor arises is as a defense, as an avoidance a habit of moving away from something, a kind of aversion. And this kind of sloth has nothing to do with being tired. We may still experience the same cloud that seems to come over our mind and body and says that I absolutely have to go to sleep. But it really isn't because you're sleepy. And it can become a part of the practice, which I'll talk about a little later one can actually break through to a whole new reservoir of energy that you didn't think was possible. Ordinarily, we buy, buy into the, the sloth when it comes up. Sometimes, sloth and torpor arises because there's an imbalance between two factors that are very important in the meditation practice. One is the factor of concentration. The other one is energy. When energy is very high in the practice and concentration is low, we tend to get very restless. When concentration is high and energy is low, we tend to get sleepy. So part of being sensitive in your own practice is to know when your energy is low, when your concentration is low, particularly when your energy is low, to raise it. And we do that in different ways. One is to sit up very straight, perhaps. Sometimes open your eyes. If you continue to be really sleepy, you might splash water on your face, look into a light, pull on your ears, walk backwards. You can do a number of different things. But you might stand up as well, at least before you start falling forward on your, on your cushion. 
that sloth and torpor. Restlessness, that's the fourth one. Agitation, worry, that internal jumpiness, achiness. I've had a lot of this in my own practice. It's, it's very, I think it's common. Very difficult to be mindful, very difficult to have any steadiness. Have any of you noticed restlessness? Since you, okay. Often, this gets started by getting lost in thoughts of the past and the future. Worrying, guilt, about situations we absolutely have no control over. Considering that the past is gone and only exists as thoughts in the present moment. And the future is unborn and again also only exists as thoughts in the present moment. Yet somehow we live so much of our time either remembering or regretting the past or fantasizing about the future or worrying about the future. Who was it that said, life is what's happening while we're planning the future? This is what we do and it keeps our mind in a state of agitation, restlessness, because we can't control what has happened or what's to come. In fact, there really is no future and there really is no past. Just thoughts that arise in the present. Restlessness. The fifth one, and probably the most subtle and undermining of all of the hindrances, all the difficulties, is doubt in all its many faces. Doubt, when we get lost in it, when we don't see it for what it is, completely incapacitates our mind, completely weakens our practice. This can be doubts about your own ability. Any conclusions that you've made about yourself that are limiting, any kinds of ideas you have, self-images, I'm not this, I can't do this. Doubts about the practice. Doubts about the teachers. Who are these people? With American accents. Doubts of many kinds. It can be, comes also in the form of the comparing mind. Is this practice like this practice? Or how is this like this? It can be a subtle form of doubt. So to really notice this in your own mind, in your own practice. Now, healthy doubt, when you're really seriously inquiring in a, in a silent way, is very healthy. That kind of doubt. But the doubt that I'm speaking about is the doubt that weakens your interest, weakens your effort. In my early retreats, this kind of practice seemed to me, my way of experiencing doubt was to start ruminating about how I thought this was too dry and too dull and I wanted to be chanting and singing and dancing. And this kind of thought just kept going and it really was, I said, no, this is not for me. This is not my practice. But I had a sense that my doubts about it, there was something hidden in it that I knew that I was onto something because it came in so many different voices that I just stayed with it and when I really looked at it, I saw that it was just this quality of doubt. 
And actually, I got a lot of energy from it. And I saw that that was my mind's way of avoiding what was going on. Other times, I would practice would be so difficult that I would say, I cannot do this anymore. I'm incapable of doing this. At one retreat, I was in a, actually a quite hysterical state. And I came running down the stairs of this meditation center and this old teacher of mine just looked at me and said, stay. <laughs> and I was ready to leave. And I was sure, and I'd been planning my escape. I'd been... <laughs> I'd, I mean, it sounds, it must be familiar. It's striking a chord. (laughs) But I stayed and noticed it as doubt at some point with the help of the teacher, thank goodness. Also, when I started to practice, I worried, one of my doubts had to do with a worry that I would become dull and listless and I would lose any kind of personality that somehow I'd become a zombie of sorts. And maybe you've had that one come through your head. So we have desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, doubt. It's really helpful to be able to identify these because often we will have these elaborate stories occurring in our practice about why this is not right or that's not right. And it could all be reduced to a simple hindrance arising, a simple kilesa. So it's helpful if you can somehow, through some trick of the mind, keep these in mind and be aware of them as you practice. They often come also in what's been called the multiple hindrance attack, where all of them arise at the same time. And one tends to lead to the other. You might notice this. The most important and effective way of dealing with them is to be mindful of them. To notice the wanting mind, to feel the wanting mind. And this means not being afraid of them or angry at them when they arise. Not being angry at the aversion that you feel, not being angry at the desire or the restlessness. It's one thing to feel aversion, but to feel aversion to the aversion is, just adds insult to injury. It's makes it very difficult. So simply to be mindful of them, to notice them in a very open-handed way. This means not grabbing onto them, not striking out at them. Most importantly, it means not identifying with them, like poor me, that's my anger, my desire, my restlessness, but to really begin to recognize these as impersonal changing conditions. They come quite uninvited by themselves. You're sitting quietly, watching the breath, and all of a sudden, you feel a strong desire. The mind is very quick to say, my desire, I'm desiring. But in fact, it's just desire. And if you can regard these as just changing conditions, like clouds passing through the sky, you'll have a much easier time just letting them pass into the into this silence, into this ocean of mind. When they're strong, you can explore them, feel them directly. What does anger feel like? What we call anger. Anger is a name that we describe a certain set of sensations and thoughts. 
What is it actually, what's the feeling of it? What's the texture of it? Often when we put our attention directly on these experiences, one, the suffering about them ceases, stops. And in fact, when we look very closely, we can't find anger at all, can't find desire at all, can't find restlessness. All we can find are certain sensations, certain thoughts. So feeling and exploring these, these states of mind. Another attitude a friend of mine recommends is befriending them. It's kind of a new age concept. Make friends with them. It's actually quite helpful to relate to them with a kind of kindness and a kind of compassion. Because a lot of the way that we relate to our experience, desires, aversions, all of our longings, all of our fears and frustrations, when they come up and they cause us pain, a lot of the way we relate to them, it's as though we think we should be able to control them. And then we, we beat ourselves up and we get angry at ourselves for having these experiences that we can't control. So when you look carefully at them and you actually see that they come uninvited by themselves, it becomes apparent that to beat yourself up for something that you can't control is a, a big mistake. It's, a, it's an error. But it, almost, it takes being able to see that they come uninvited to do that. But as you begin to see that, you can begin to be more kind to them. Recognize, oh, look, at, look what pattern has gotten set in motion before I was able to understand what was going on can begin to maybe rub our heart or rub our bellies or whatever it is that whatever way that we show kindness to ourselves one of the cardinal rules in dealing with the hindrances is that you can't observe them in order for them to go away it's a kind of bargaining it doesn't work because in that is some kind of aversion it means I don't really like this and I'll look at you if you go away. It doesn't work. It just gets stronger. So you really have to come to this open-handed, accepting relationship to the hindrances, to the difficulties. In my practice, I had such incessant wanting. I have had such incessant wanting. I'd be sitting quietly, and I would just feel this impulse that I want things to be different. I want something to happen. I want to feel more concentration. And no matter how many times I would notice it, I would still feel this quality of wanting. And pretty soon I started noting it and assuming if I really noted it carefully that it would go away. But I, didn't, I wasn't recognizing that there was an agenda in my noticing, that I, that I didn't really like it and I wanted it to go away. When I finally got that and settled back and just said, okay, this is, this is the condition that I, this is my condition. This is maybe the human condition, this habit of wanting. Somehow felt some compassion toward myself and the whole thing began to, to quiet. If we remain undisturbed in the midst of these hindrances, they will pass on their own. Just think about all the thoughts that you've had, all the feelings you've had, even since you got here. They've gone. Back with, my friend Jack says, back with the pharaohs. 
working with desire, feeling desire, observing what the effect of the desire is. Notice the difference when you're observing desire. What, how you feel when you're in a state of desire or wanting, and how you feel when there is no wanting. The difference is so extreme. There's this kind of coolness when we're in a state of not want, when we're in a state of, of rest or peace. Feeling the anger. Noticing the tendency to push it outside of ourselves, to attribute it to somebody else, to something else. Investigating the feeling. Restlessness. You might want to sit very straight, actually make a resolve for a few moments if you're feeling really restless. Sit very straight, just to feel it. Sometimes it passes. Have the sense of dying to it. If it continues to be really, really strong, if you're feeling a lot of restlessness, it's okay to get up and walk. Try to keep the continuity of mindfulness. Sleepiness, as I mentioned, all the different antidotes. Doubt. Notice doubt. Doubt. If you can, if you can identify that doubt is occurring, it can cut through the whole story of what you're telling yourself about yourself or about about the whole situation you're in. Recognize that they're all just changing conditions of the mind, like clouds in the sky. The beauty of a retreat is that stopping and just feeling our condition creates a kind of friction. And out of this friction, up come our demons, up come our difficulties. Without, in, in their own integrity, in their own nature, we don't have to force anything. Just the fact of being, of sitting in the silence, creates a kind of vacuum and up come things. And our job here is to, in a sense, Notice what it is that comes up. Let it go. Let it be. I'm going to read a couple things to you that, that have inspired me and kind of create a, a picture of, of what I mean. This is from Nisargadatta, who Carol quoted from last night. He says, Keep quiet, undisturbed, and the wisdom and the power will come on their own. You need not hanker. Wait in silence of heart and mind. It's very easy to be quiet, but willingness is rare. You people want to become supermen overnight. Stay without ambition, without the least desire, exposed, vulnerable, unprotected, uncertain, and alone. Completely open to and welcoming life as it happens, without the selfish conviction that all must yield you pleasure or profit, material or so-called spiritual. I respond to what you say, but I don't know how to do it, the questioner asks. He says, if you know how to do it, you will not do it. Abandon every attempt. Just be. Don't strive. Don't struggle. Let go of every support. Hold on to the sense of being. Brushing off all else. The sense of noticing it and letting it go. This is enough. 
Let things come and go. Desires and thoughts are also things. Disregard them. Since immemorial time, the dust of events was covering the clear mirror of your mind so that only the memories you could see. Brush off the dust before it has time to settle. This will lay bare the old layers until the true nature of your mind is discovered. This is from Ajahn Chah, a great forest meditation master in Thailand. The question and answer. Person says, I still have many thoughts. My mind wanders a lot, even though I'm trying to be mindful. He says, try to keep your mind in the present. Whatever there is that arises in the mind, just watch it. Let go of it. Don't even, be wish, don't even wish to be rid of thoughts. Then the mind will reach its natural state. No discriminating between good and bad, hot and cold, fast and slow. No me and no you. No self at all. Just what there is. Wherever you are, Know yourself by being natural and watching. If doubts arise, watch them come and go. It's very simple. Hold on to nothing. It is as though you are walking down a road. Periodically, you will run into obstacles. When you meet defilements, just see them and just overcome them by letting go of them. Don't think about the obstacles you have passed already. Don't worry about those you have not yet seen. Stick to the present. Don't be concerned about the length of the road or about a destination. Everything is changing. Whatever you pass, do not cling to it. Eventually, the mind will reach its natural balance where practice is automatic. All things will come and go of themselves. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and quieter in any surroundings. It will become still, like a clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will see clearly the nature of all things in the world. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.